0: to Wood Talk, for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who like to use a lot of words, yet say nothing at all. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Alright, welcome to Wood Talk number 277 for October 5th, 2015. On today's show, we're talking about laminated leg vice chops, managing scrap wood, and loose tenon joinery methods. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, SawStop. After more than a decade, SawStop's combination of safety and precision has made them the number one cabinet saw in North America. Use the interactive tools at SawStop.com to build and price your ideal SawStop and then find a dealer online or near you. Protect yourself today with SawStop. And uh, this nasally thing is going to drive me nuts. If it's not driving (laughs) the listeners nuts, it will drive me nuts. And I apologize for it. My nose is all stuffed. You guys know I got this cough slash sinus slash potentially reflux thing going on and it's not solved yet so uh you know the show must go on
1: yeah well if we had done the show like 24 hours earlier you'd be nasally and i'd be like barry white because i got like the entire right side of my head is plugged up i can't hear on my right ear but like the last couple of days it just sat on my throat and it was just like hey
0: what's going on i want to hear that we should have done it yesterday that <laughs> would've would've definitely would have been better uh, we want to give a special thanks to a couple of kind and generous individuals who helped us out by supporting us and going to woodtalkshow.com looking for those donation links and sending us a few bucks so uh, that would be Joel Laviolette or Laviolet what would be the, What do you think the pronunciation is there Laviolet uh, Lavioletti I mean, do you go with the T's or go like La Violette? La Violette or La Violette? Okay. Either way, Joel, we know who you are. Thanks, man. Yeah. And uh, Joshua he's, Pruitt. He's
1: the Reddit guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a We're good working dude. working Reddit forum.
0: Faux for show. Sure. Nice guy. Uh, Joshua Pruitt and Kenneth Walton. Thank you so much, you guys. We really appreciate the support. Uh, and hey, when you go to WoodtalkShow.com, go over there to the giveaway page and get yourself into running for a nice little t shirt prize because we love you. We like giving away stuff. So uh, go <laughs> get get Yourself a t shirt, all right. Let's move into what's on the bench. Oh, by the way, no Matt today. Again, uh, we yeah. kind of warned you this might happen and it's happening, so we we are too lazy to get a replacement for him. So here we are, just me and Shannon. <laughs> we just swapped text with him, like you know, right before Two we started recording, yeah. so
1: it's like he's here,
0: sort of, kind of in spirit.
1: All uh, right, reminds me, I should turn off my uh, your ringer, ringer here because Matt's probably going to text me. Good it's idea.
0: go bing, bing. Yep, mine's oh. already off. All right, yeah, mine actually goes hubba hubba whenever Matt calls or texts <laughs> nice. me. I got it uh, assigned for him. All right, so what's on the bench for me? Tapered legs and rails for the gaming table. It's uh, moving right along, and I was able to make just a little simple tapering jig for the bandsaw, and that really consists of nothing but a piece of plywood with the proper angle cut in it, and then a piece of scrap glued to the end to sort of help push it through. And I went with the bandsaw on this because these are thick three and a half inch legs. So the capacity, I'm not really sure the table saw would be able to to cut it. Uh, (laughs) But the bandsaw works perfectly for this. So it just needs a little bit of cleanup, a little smoothing after the fact. And those big uh, tapers on three and a half inch square legs came out perfect. So uh, super. I think that I've always kind of,
1: mocked tapering (laughs) jigs
0: yeah (laughs) just because
1: it just seems like uh, it seems like a lot of extra work for something draw the line and and however hand tool whatever it's not about hand tools or power tools just like cut to that line you know right that's an instance though that makes sense when you've got a huge timber basically Mm -hmm. on your your table what did you taper to from three and a half to what
0: oh, I don't remember the exact number, but I took off probably a good inch by the time we were at the end of the thing. Like it the looked foot. pretty hefty. Yeah, um, it's pretty significant.
1: There's an instance where, okay, make the jig because you're taking off a lot of stuff here. Sure. But yeah, most of the time, like you think of the, the average, the iconic shaker table, the one drawer shaker table, yep. the tapers from like one and an eighth inch to like three quarters. It's like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> just grab a four plane or something or whatever, jigsaw and just, yeah.
0: Well, and you know, most of the time when I do have a, a, maybe not this large, this is pretty big, but when I have a a reasonable smaller table sort of taper that I'm doing, uh, I you know, doing the whole jig thing, if if you've got a jig that's already like rigged up and all you have to do is drop the leg in, line up the lines and clamp it in, fine, uh, that's great. But I don't really have one of those sitting around the shop and I kind of make my tapering jigs as needed. Uh, And this was a case where it's like most of the time I will just go to the bandsaw and cut to the line exactly what you're describing but you know even if it's a significant amount of material I'm not going to plane all the way down but I can cut to a line pretty darn mm-hmm. clean and then once once that line is you know even if it's a little bit rough once you're pretty close as long as the the general direction of that line is close you could give that thing a light pass over the jointer uh maybe one or two very light passes, and now you've got a perfectly clean line with the exact angle you need and if if the uh two tapers aren't one hundred percent like to the uh you know nearest tenth degree perfect, who right. the heck is gonna notice you yeah. know there's that doesn't have to be absolutely perfect, so I usually go low well low tech for my standards uh <laughs> I go with a low tech solution for those tapers Uh, but in this case I'm like you know what it'll take me five minutes at the most to make a jig that'll at least give me the repeatability and then I could just put each one through and you know next thing I'm done uh, all four legs are done all eight tapers are done and I'm you know able to move on to the next section and
1: it's a significant amount of stock you're removing not so much you know the thickness from the top of the taper to the bottom but the width of that leg yeah three and a half inches that's a a lot to remove for me it would be like okay that's Multiple overlapping passes of a plane, and that's when things start to get a little hazy. Yeah, you know, keeping that that geometric plane square can mm-hmm. get a little bit more difficult, sure. So now it makes sense to get a really good, clean, like consistent cut off the saw so that you can just kind of sweep by with a plane.
0: Yep, what is that? As, is that like as a, the
1: lawnmower sweeps by outside? My window. I
0: it sounds like a leaf blower or something going on. Nice. Uh, I
1: think it's a little bit of both. The, the, the neighbors across the street have like an army. It's like he. I think the whole reason he had kids was to have like lawn care army. <laughs> it's like he comes home and it's like rally the troops, kids, yeah. and they all pour out the front door. And the oldest kid grabs the riding lawnmower, and the father grabs the other riding lawnmower, and the middle kid grabs the like backpack leaf blower, and right, little girl's got a rake, I think. And nice, they just,
0: yeah. It's like their own lawn crew. That's great.
1: God, and they run it forever. And I'm really looking forward to winter when the grass stops growing.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And they just happen to do it at Monday at six o'clock. That's great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All
0: it's right. Fabulous. All right, you talk, I'm gonna mute. Okay, that sounds good. Well, actually, you know, now that you're muted, I'm I'm done Oops. talking. Yeah, so it is me now it's it? your turn, sir. All right.
1: I hear them going around the backyard. Okay, we'll do the All best right. we can. So this weekend, if you remember in one of our last shows, I talked about how I was doing um restoring planes and I you know, swung to buy the the PMV11. Yep. Well, they showed up last week. So I spent the weekend playing with those and uh, putting them through their paces. So I think we'll probably save that for a little bit later because we're going to kind of review it a little bit later in the show.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I actually forgot to mention that at the top of the show, we are going to add with Matt missing here. We're trying to add a few extra things in Uh, and I've got my initial impressions of the Bosch glide uh, miter saw and Shannon's going to talk a little bit about the PMV 11. Uh, trials, so um, you know, not really in-depth reviews so much, but just initial impressions with tools that we just recently acquired. Uh, we thought you guys would like that. All right, so let's move into what's new. I got the first one here. Um, now this is this is just a funny experience I had. I thought it would be interesting to mention here. If anyone wants to start building barrel half like half barrel <laughs> tables, you could potentially be a millionaire. Uh, that's not true, but, um, it would make you think that once you hear these statistics. So I shared a picture that was sent to me. Now, folks who follow, like, just this online social stuff over the years know how much we can't stand, uh, Ted's woodworking and the kind of people who promote those sites that, like, you know, run your own business for, you know, just, it, 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 you see it with these, like, really glossy, perfect looking pictures. There's, um, Uh, you know, stock photo models, and it just, the whole thing just reeks of some kind of scam, right? Uh, So there was one. It wasn't exactly Ted's Woodworking, but it was one of those scam websites that also has an accompanying Facebook page with some generic, like, woodworking projects, kind of, like, generic name, which you know is (laughs) 10,000 Woodworking Projects. Yeah, exactly. So they left the picture, And I know it wasn't there. So they left the picture on my Facebook page. And I'm like, all right, that's a great looking picture. But you know what I'm going to do? And what they would hope I would do with it is share it. So that my share would then go out to more people giving their page more attention. So I downloaded the picture. I deleted their comment. And then I shared it with the audience. Um, But as me instead of as them. Uh, right. So this this picture went out and really what I wanted to know was who took the picture? Who, who does this belong to? Because it's a little bit tricky to find even using like a Google's reverse image search it can be very difficult to find who should be credited for this image. So that's what I did. I said this is a fantastic looking table. Uh, does anyone know who the original source is? Now from my research it turns out that there's this winery site that it's a discontinued item. They don't even have it anymore but I think that's the the original makers of it. Anyway, this thing goes out there, and I don't know what was in it, I don't know what kind of special sauce I applied to it, but holy crap, did this thing go viral? And you know, by my standards, this is through the roof compared to my normal posts on Facebook. So it's been about four, four days, maybe, uh, and so far the tally is 20 and a half million people <laughs> reached a hundred and seventy one thousand shares and six thousand five hundred comments. And this is the icing on the cake. A few hundred emails asking me where they can buy it. Mm. In spite of my initial post saying that I don't know who made it and where, you know, I don't know who the maker was. People still just ignored that and decided to ask, Hey, where can I buy that half uh, half barrel table? So, (laughs) so the whole concept of online viral stuff is, um, it's an enigma. I don't really understand it. I'm not even sure what the heck this just did for me. It's like, woo, I got something that went viral. Okay, now what? You know, did I, did I get any guild members out of that? Did uh, these folks go to my site and actually enjoy my, my woodworking educational content? I don't think they did. <laughs> you know, they no, saw this pit- so pretty much. picture. So that's
1: a lot of people's. And, uh, that- uh, and, and what's crazy is these are Facebook statistics, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I always think they are, you know, they say however many people reached, and it's like, okay, well. You know, considering how difficult it is for me to find something in my Facebook timeline after I passed it once. Right. Like suddenly everything disappears and you it's just, brand new. As long as you scroll by it, it counts. That's even more impressive because I always feel like, you know, I'll push something out and my normal numbers through like other social media channels and Facebook will be like half of that yep. because it seems like the timeline is like conniving against me or something like that. So 20.5 20,
0: 20. million. <laughs> that's impressive. That's it, it's, wow. That's a number. So, uh, so the moral to the story is though, if you have access to barrels you may consider building some I don't know that anyone's going to pay what you really need to charge for it but there are definitely people who like this concept of a half uh, half barrel table so go for it people get on it right on because I'm not doing it 6,500 comments. Did you even read like a hundred of them? I no, mean, no,
1: no, no. That could take like all day just to read through those comments. Well,
0: and that's not crazy. to mention by the time it got beyond my circle, we're now talking about not just non woodworkers, but we're talking about like so-and-so's aunt Sally and like people who have no idea who we are. It was, it's just not, it's not feasible and it's probably not worth my time to, to go through those comments.
1: <laughs> yeah. No kidding.
0: Yeah. Crazy.
1: Wow. Well, this is something that I actually, um, while we're on the topic, came across on Facebook. It is uh, an exhibition at the Peabody Essex Museum Hmm. of Theo Janssen's, uh, what does he call it, Strand Beast. These are wind-powered sculptures. They're made out of wood and some sailcloth and some, I think, PVC pipe. Um, And the wind actually manipulates them. And if you watch some of the video, it looks like an actual living Creature like walking down the beach. Wow! It's it's like something Jim Henson would would think up and then like stretch, you know, felt over and, and put glasses on or something. You know,
0: it is it is the
2: coolest looking Dude, thing I've I'm, ever seen.
0: I'm looking at it now and it's like all you have to do is go to the web page and it's the background of the web page is the yeah. video. Um, that's fantastic. That reminds me of the little uh, dinosaur, well, little the giant dinosaur thing that Izzy Swan had uh, just recently made. Yeah. I mean, like the feet, it,
1: it, like it picks up its feet and steps forward and everything. And there's another one where it, it's stationary, but it just has like a tail and a head that actually move around in the wind and you swear the thing's alive. Yeah. It's just incredible.
0: That is awesome. And the great thing about it is it's wind powered. There's a sail on it and it's just it's just yeah. cruising down the beach until it goes into the water. Right. And then then, uh, then you got a problem. Right. It may, not, may not walk cool. so well. Yeah, very awesome. Uh, now, here's an interesting thing. This just came in actually not too long ago uh, from our buddy David. It's an Instructables article. He said, here's an Instructable on dovetails that shows long grain joints instead of the more typical end grain style. What application would be best for this variation? Now, we, uh, we made a few jokes with David uh, and wrote him back <laughs> and kind of said that we don't think there's really any good use. In fact, you want to say what you said in the email? Because that was kind of funny.
1: I think it would make a good uh prop board for a movie right because you know the actor could snap that board in half and with no effort at all,
0: yeah like when you're training a toddler in karate. And right, you want them to like have a successful break, no matter what. Right, you Give might this long grain dovetail. <laughs> you I'm might joining. consider joining the two boards with uh, dovetails like this. Well, here's the thing: it's actually a good article in you know Instructables. The way they break them down are typically very easy to understand. His technique, um, the the technique for cutting these dovetails, is quite sound. Right, I didn't see anything there with that in terms of uh, anything out of the ordinary in terms of how he actually cut the dovetails. The problem, the the issue we have with it, is these long grain joints like this actually are really weak um if you if you (laughs) look at the way it's done and you cut imagine instead of just uh you know let's say a butt joint for a corner right maybe you're building like a tall vertical box maybe like a speaker or something like that Uh, you're trying to get that corner together so instead of just a butt joint or a rabbit or something else there you are joining them with dovetails so the sides of the boards are now being dovetailed instead of the ends and just fundamentally with the direction of the grain, that's not really very strong. In fact, it's going to be fairly right. weak. When, when you
1: score your baseline, you're actually starting that split. In other words, right? Yeah. The baseline is parallel to your grain. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's you another just thing perforated I mean, the board.
0: Well, the other thing with that is that you, as you scribe that line, I think he's using a wheel gauge. Um, what tends to happen when you scribe with the grain, and one of the reasons that tells you it's probably not the greatest thing to do, is your your wheel and your gauge will tend to follow the grain. It can be very difficult to do a true right. scribe with the grain because the grain is pushing you one way or another, as opposed to cross grain scribes, which it's just going straight across the grain. So you could guide it effectively. So I mean, we're not pointing this out to necessarily dis. But we want to make sure we're we're clarifying here and also saying, you know, we don't necessarily know every use case. So maybe someone out there can tell us what the use case for this is that makes sense and why someone would want to do long grain dovetails like this. Uh, You know, we got to at least allow for that possibility. I
1: I suppose I'd I'd be really (laughs) interested because it goes against everything that I know about wood and structure of wood.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just—it would be an interesting thing to do, just to see how easy it would be to break. Uh, Because you're right, you kind of are saying, "Okay, I got this started for you. Crack now, finish Mm -hmm. it off." You know, it's—it is fundamentally weak. Right. Uh, but it's interesting. The it's gag joint. That's what it is. Gag yeah. joint. Well, and it's one of those things, too, because as, as folks who've been making content online, we uh, are probably the last people to utter the words, got to be careful what you read online. Right. Uh, you know, because that's the kind of crap that was uttered at us when we first started. And even today, uh, the, the stuff that we put online, um, remember the whole. Uh, Vetted debacle with fine woodworking, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was uh, and ASA and how you know they're they're better than everyone else because their content is vetted and they just got their butts handed to them for saying stuff like that. Uh, right. So you can see where we stand on that. We believe everybody should be able to go out and produce content and teach people what they know. Uh, but there is a, a grain of truth to that, and that you really do need to to maybe ask around, like David did. You know, send this article to a friend and say, hey. Can you see a reason to use this? Does this make sense to you? This seems weird. (laughs) Yeah. Something's a little off about this. And and it's
1: interesting because when he when he sent the email, he said long grain joints. And the first thing I thought of was like a sliding dovetail Mm -hmm. It never even popped into my head that you're essentially turning the board 90 degrees now. it just uh, wow. I just can't even possibly imagine why you would ever do that.
0: Yeah. I'm going to be the uh, devil's advocate here and say that there might be a reason. And if someone knows, let us know, because we want to give this uh, article the benefit of the doubt, at least. All right. No poll of the week this week. Tom's busy. (laughs) He's busy. uh, He's just busy. He's doing stuff. Uh, And let's talk about these reviews. This should be fun. Um, Hold on. I'm I'm moving my leg. And that's not me farting. That's the leather on the chair. (laughs) It's actually
1: pleather. It's okay. No one can hear it over the leaf blower. That's
0: true. Yeah, today's sounds in the show are gonna be probably the worst we've ever had. Uh the to, question is, is the leaf blower louder than the F 16s?
1: Yeah, yeah that's true. You know, what does
0: that tell you about the leaf blower? We actually get very lucky with the uh with the Air Force in our Wood Talk recordings. For some reason, this time on Mondays, they just don't happen to be flying, uh, which is kind of kinda nice. All right, so reviews. Let's talk a little bit about the Bosch Glide. Now, folks have heard me talk in the past uh recently about how some of the Festool stuff is leaving my shop. I won't get into the reasons why, but it is. And I'm auditioning is how I like to refer to it. Other tools. So what I'm trying to do is do a Mark style review. Excuse me. I just uh, made fart sounds and now I'm actually burping. <clears throat> I shouldn't drink during the show. Nice. Okay. So I'm trying to do a Mark style review of these things when Mark style review means put it, to use and actually put it in my shop. I'm not trying to compare it against 30 other saws. I'm not trying to create a spreadsheet for someone to look at numbers and compare the nitty gritty. Uh, oh, but spreadsheets work so well on audio. They really do. Uh, they do, especially when we read poll results, uh, and there are too many <laughs> that that goes well too. Uh, so yeah, it's it's something where I just want to say, look, I had the Capex before. Now I'm trying this out. I'm also going to do this with the a Makita slider that I have. Uh, and I'm just going to compare and see which one do I like using more? Which one is, uh, you know, what do I miss from the Capex? Do I miss anything from it? Uh, and see how it stacks up that way. Because most people tend to upgrade their saws and go for something, you know, that's perceived as better. Uh, this is what i don't really see it as a downgrade, especially in the miter saw market. but if you look at it on paper you're going from a fourteen hundred dollar saw down to a six seven hundred dollar saw something i can't remember exactly what the price is so wow. it's uh you know
1: that's a pretty huge drop
0: though huge that's my trump impression huge. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it, it is definitely a big drop, right? And that's how the market is in miter saws, which is why I'm really interested in this because I never felt that the Capex was the game changer that some Festool tools can be, right? Like the Domino and the TS saws. I find those to be game changers. I don't feel like the Capex is that. It's a great saw, but I don't think it's uh, twice the price great. You know, It's not giving you twice the value or twice the accuracy. Um, like some of their other tools might. So anyway, got this Bosch uh, Blosh, Blosh guide. Oh my God, I'm, I'm moving my L's around. Bosch glide and uh, basically have worked through the beginning of this project with it. So I've made a, a, a good number of cross cuts with it. I've gone through the setup procedure. I've done a blade change on it. And I'll tell you what, so far so good. The table is nice and flat The fence is square. Uh, One thing I really like about it that I didn't like about the Capex is that I could put a three-quarter inch fence on there, so a sacrificial fence, and it doesn't get in the way of the clamping mechanism. On the Capex, the weird shape of that clamp system uh, means that it it goes back toward the fence too much, and uh, you really can't get a a good thick three-quarter inch sacrificial fence in place. Really? Yep. Wow,
1: because that was like the number one thing to add. Yeah, you know, once you got it in your shop, it was put that sacrificial mm-hmm. essentially zero clearance, yeah, um, fence.
0: Yeah, huh. that, it's a that, that was a big issue for me. So I actually had to modify the clamp. I, I I cut off the back end. I can't remember what the original shape was. It's like a half moon sort of crescent kind of shape. So I basically cut the crescent portion off and now it's just this little rectangle. Uh, Works just as well, but now it clears the three quarter inch fence. Uh, Mm -hmm. So no modifications on the Bosch. Right out of the box, you could put a three quarter inch fence on there and the clamp will clear it. Now, speaking of the clamp, one of the things I love to use on a saw like that is the clamp. Uh, getting really good, accurate cuts at the miter saw and repeatable cuts comes from securing the workpiece so it doesn't move. And the clamp on that system is just a screw clamp. Uh, so it's very slow. Uh, so that's one clamp thing-
1: Clamp on that, which system? On the Bosch? On the Bosch,
0: I'm sorry. Yeah, on the okay. Bosch, it's really slow. So I I really get annoyed um, sometimes when I have to reset it and I'm doing multiple cuts. It takes a while to turn that thing and, and get the screw to be nice and tight. Uh, on the Capex, it's actually just pushing in place. It's one of those quick clamp. Type systems and you know put it on to work, put the lever down, it's clamped in place. Uh, so that is one thing that I miss, but that's you know for the price difference, that is not a deal breaker. Uh, right. dust collection is if you look at it, it kind of looks like a mini version of the capex. Uh, it's basically got that rubber dust shroud, and the dust collection hose goes on the top, and the dust collection works, but it does not work anywhere near what the capex does out of the box. Uh, so there is quite a bit of dust going all over the place, but it is doing something. Uh, What I've heard is pretty effective is to actually buy the, I guess it's like a $7 replacement part for the Capex. You could buy that rubber dust shroud and put that on the Bosch. (laughs) Or you can kind of just add some stuff onto the existing one on the Bosch to kind of just widen it a little bit. It gives it a little bit more... um, uh, coverage and that makes a huge, from what I understand, maybe not huge. It should probably make a big difference in the overall dust collection on it. Uh, cut quality is good. I've got a um, a forest blade in there, so the cut quality is probably just as much a measure of the blade that's in it uh, as it is the saw itself. But super powerful glide. I think is like the perfect name for the saw because the the motion of that thing is just effortless. It's absolutely super sweet. Glides right through the material. Um I mean it's it's actually uh, a setting that you can change I think you can give it a little bit more resistance uh, but it's so super smooth it's a very sweet cutting machine And right out of the box, it was tuned. Uh, The miter was right where it needed to be. The bevel was right where it needed to be. And I'm pretty happy with it. So, so far, so good. The Makita is sitting right next to it. I'll be testing that uh, soon. But right now, the Bosch is looking good. It's a a contender. If I could get some kind of a clamping mechanism that worked a little bit faster, I'd really be in love with this thing.
1: Um, I was going to say, there's got to be. There's so much (coughs) out-of-the-market stuff for miter saws. Um there's gotta be something Craig's probably got something
0: yeah know, well i looked at. I looked on uh what is it uh four bosch's saws, and I did find some kind of a quick clamp, but it's it's really big, it's clunky, and it does fit sort of, but it interferes with the fence a little bit and it's not really meant for the glide saw, it's meant for some of their other saws, so you know I've got that, but I'm not totally I'm not totally happy with it I don't can think you buy can you buy the festival ones aftermarket? Well, or are it they $100 would a
1: hundred dollars a piece.
0: Well, yeah, it would also be a matter of can that fit in the holes provided on the body of the Bosch, right. and I don't know. So, yeah, if someone has any suggestions for a quick clamping option on that uh, on the Bosch, that'd be fantastic because that might push this one over the edge for me. Um, but the Makita is a strong contender as well. I used to have a Makita before it was stolen from my shop, and then I went toward the uh, toward the KPEx. So, I'd be very interested if anyone has any tips for improving either of those saws and making them a little bit a little bit better, but look at the price difference, man. I mean, twice as much or actually 50% uh, the price of a Capex and you've got a saw that performs and gets you the kind of cuts you need for fine woodworking uh, just as well. You know? So I think the the Capex is definitely, again, good miter saw, but one of the harder ones for a typical shop woodworker to, uh, to justify. Oh, final thing, just like the Capex, it can go right against the wall, right? So it doesn't have to have any clearance behind the saw uh, to do its job, which is what makes it appropriate for a lot of small shop woodworkers. Yeah. So that's that. Bosch Glide. Ooh. Can you can you hear Diami right now? Uh, do you think he's happy? He's probably he got to be happy. I said some good things. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I yeah. think he's he's feeling vindicated. He probably peed himself just now. <laughs> Let us know, Diami, Did you pee yourself? Okay. Right on. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: um, I, uh, I bought some of the powdered metal PMV 11 steel from Veritas into my shop and have spent, let's see, I guess. And kind of like you, Mark, I, I don't do reviews very much because the last thing I want to do is do a bunch of head to head stuff. I get something, Mm -hmm. I bring it into the shop and I work with it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been, Let's just say over the course of like a long weekend is the time that I've actually had working with the steel enough that I I set it up in the three different uh, jack planes that I was restoring. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, of course, right out of the box, typical Veritas fashion, I was able to lap the back. I started on a thousand grit diamond stone and went from a thousand grit to an eight thousand grit um, and and was done. Uh, You know, brought up a shine right away. I've never been one to go with the absolute mirror polish on the back. It's kind of mirror-ish, you know, with a few (laughs) kind of cloudy, hazy spots. The way I see it is, it's flat enough, and it's going to become more of a more mirror, more, more and more of a mirror-like surface as I hone it over Mm -hmm. time. You know, because you you hone the bevel, you bring up a burr, and you flip it over on your eight thousand grit stone, and you wipe off the burr. Enough of that, eventually, it becomes a mirror. So I didn't spend more than maybe. A minute at each grit, uh, lapping it, and I mean it was it was dead flat right out of the right out of the little box thingy it comes in. That's what you're paying for. Yeah, Um, bevel was was already set at I want to say thirty. I'm terrible when it comes to bevel angles because I just don't pay attention because I do everything freehand now. But I mean it was I did the same thing. I went thousand grit, eight thousand grit, and I was good to go on there. So cool. I I can't say that I noticed everyone always says, you know, the difference between O1 and and A2 is the how how hard it is and how fast you can sharpen it. Supposedly PMV11 sharpens really, really fast, but it, it's hard enough and holds an edge long like A2 steel. Mm-hmm. That's supposedly the difference. Um a lot of people tell you that O1 steel actually gets sharper um, because it's not quite as brittle, you can take it to a finer point. So supposedly, the PMV-11 is kind of right in the middle. It's the best of both worlds that it's supposed to do all of this.
0: So let me so, let me pause you right there. So you say supposedly. Now, I've always regurgitated that same sort of commentary about the different uh, metals, but I don't mm-hmm. use them enough to necessarily say, oh, yes, this definitely sharpens faster, or, oh, yes, this right. is this is much uh, sharper of an edge than, uh, than this A2 stuff. So it... Like it, with the amount that you use them, have you seen that in your work and used enough of the different metals to confirm that for yourself? I really haven't seen it, which is know? funny to me. I mean, because you're a and, heavy and, hand. You know, a I user. sharpen
1: all the time. I, I'm not one of those. You, know, I hear about guys online who are like, oh, I took the day to sharpen. That's not me. Yeah. You know, I sharpen constantly. Um, my my mantra is don't let it get dull. I spend so much time on a strop and an eight thousand grit stone, and never going coarser than that because i i don't let it happen um i have um i've noticed it on the lathe and that's really the only time i have o1 steel turning tools mm-hmm. and of course i have high speed steel turning tools so it's not really the same okay. it's not an a2 um, O1 comparison, but at the lower RPM high torque of a, of a foot-powered lathe, I've definitely noticed that I can get my O1 turning tools sharp enough to handle it, yeah. whereas the high-speed tools, they're, I can't quite get the finish that I want off a of high-speed steel. Um, I have... A2 and I got to tell you, it's always a struggle because I always want to say A1. Yeah.
0: Um, steak especially sauce. this
1: time of day because I'm hungry. Right. Um, I have steak sauce chisels. <laughs> I, have, I have A2 bench chisels from Lee Nielsen. I have um, some O1 chisels that I've gotten over the years. Um, in addition, I've also got lots of vintage chisels with God knows what kind of steel that is, you know, mm-hmm. 19th century steel and 18th century steel. Um, And I've got O1 plane blades and A2 plane blades. And if I hadn't labeled them, (laughs) I don't think I would know the difference anymore. So I'm sure it's there. Um, But because of the way I sharpen, because I'm rarely grinding, because I'm really just doing final polishing and honing, I just don't notice it. Um, My carving gouges, I'm not actually sure what steel they are. Um they're they're file carving gouges, so someone can probably tell me what that is. I can probably look it up and tell. But generally, I think carving tools tend to be of the softer steel because you can get it that much sharper.
0: Yeah.
1: I just don't know that it's noticeable, to <laughs> be to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, maybe if I did a heck of a lot more carving, I would know. Um so anyway, the idea behind PMV11 steel is it takes the best, the the super sharp edge of O1, the extra long durability and hardness of A2, and easy to sharpen nature of of O1 and puts it into one blade. So great. You know, they honed up really, really quickly. Uh, I put the planes to work both on poplar, hard maple. I have a scrap of purple heart that I used it on. Um, so I, I put it through its paces and, you know, took, uh, each plane and I took a rough sawn board and I flattened it on six faces That's success did. So I took it, put it to work on ingrain as well. And, um, each plane, you know, did that whole board without having to doing any resharpening, uh, even on that purple heart, crazy stuff. So durability to me is there. Um, and we're not talking like a little board. We're talking like, um, each board was around four feet long Mm -hmm. furniture sized part board. Um, four feet long and six inches wide type board. And, um, you know, re them back up in seconds and went back to work actually on a project I'm working on. So I was back to Cherry and Poplar on that. And, um, you know, I did notice the longevity was there. Um, I, I felt like I would have stopped and gone back to my strop before I did on these planes. Now, maybe I was pushing it a little bit, um just to see how long they go but uh you know it's good stuff you know I, yeah. I think that the the softer nature of it i don't know i'm wondering if i'm in hindsight i'm starting to read into a little bit more it did feel like it honed up faster than some of the a2 stuff that i've worked with before um i was able to get a burr really really quickly and in, in all those instances mm-hmm. so um I, I think it's a really good steal. um I think probably putting another another project's worth of time into it just to see how much it happens, yeah uh you know how much I've got to go back and sharpen, but again, I wonder just the way I work if I'm really ever gonna notice mm-hmm. um you know I have a strop next to me on the bench all the time, um like when I chop out dovetails when I did the case sides for my blanket chest, they're talking fifteen tails per per corner. Um, I stopped and stropped probably six times while I was chopping out the pens. Wow. Um, just because that's the way I do it. You know, when when it, the ingrain starts to pull out on you, a couple quick swipes on the strop and you get nice clean ingrain again. And that's just kind of the habit that I've gotten into. When I um, am working with a four-plane, uh, you know, I'll surface one one face and kind of pull out the four-plane blade, wipe it over the strop a couple times and go back to work. I didn't strop at all while mm-hmm. I was using the... Um, the Powdered metal stuff, so that's probably an indication that it holds its edge really, really well. Cool, uh, but you know, I, I think the science is there, um, to tell me that it's a good blade. When I mentioned that I was bringing this steel in, that I had it, um, the n- amount of feedback I got through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter about people who had it and thought, man, this stuff is amazing, uh, is really, really cool. There also is an interesting theory put forward, um by Caleb James about um, diamond stones and powdered metal. Um, He's always been kind of, I like diamond stones, but I only like it for uh, conglomerate type steels that are um, breaking apart, kind of wearing down rather than, well, I don't know. I don't know enough about metallurgy. Right, right. But the, uh, his theory is that diamond stones, they're going to be a lot slower on things like a two and even slower on 01, but really, really fast on PMV 11. So the one thing I didn't try was pull out my water stones okay. on them. Hmm. Maybe there would be a difference there. But uh, and he seems to know what he's talking about, but uh, seems to think that diamond stones work really, really well on that kind of engineered steel where it's, you know, from powder to, yeah. to make this into something. So right. Um, you know, I give it a thumbs up just based on a weekend working with it. Uh, good stuff. But again, <laughs> I don't know. You know, uh, I think if I were in a situation where I was buying everything again, mm-hmm, I would go but, ahead and buy it. You know, why not? Yeah. Um, I but, don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's certainly worth the extra, I want to say it was an extra $10 for
0: uh, the v 11. That's not bad. No, but but not probably not worth replacing everything you currently have with PMV 11, right? Exactly. Well, and that was one of the things. Um,
1: I had a comment from Vic. Actually, he was a little shocked that I hadn't played with it yet. I mean, it's yeah. been around for what two years now.
0: Yeah, it's been a while.
1: And it just comes down to the fact that I I, I didn't need anything. You know, uh, that's the the frustrating thing when the Lee Valley catalog shows up in the mail. All oh, looks cool, but I don't need anything, right? So, yeah. You know, it's got. I've got to have a, a reason to go out and drop you know fifty, sixty bucks on a new blade. And mine my
0: works. My, my stuff works great. Yeah, makes sense. Well, very so, cool. Good stuff. All right, let's move into kickback, and uh, this is where you guys give us some opinions and thoughts on things that we said in past shows. Uh, first one here. This is a good one. I like this. Just an FYI for Shannon. There's no end in restaurateur. <laughs> <laughs> Fun show though. I now guess uh, I
1: must have said restaurateur. Yeah,
0: um, and I, I. That's how I said it too. So I'm as guilty as you were. I had no idea there was no N in restaurateur. <laughs> It's, it just sounds like it sounds so weird to say it without the end. Restaurateur. Restaurateur. Restiator. All right. Well, uh, noted, duly noted. And we'll try to, the, the next time we mention that word in the show, which will probably right. be never, uh, we will say it correctly. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next one here is from Tom. Uh, is this Tom Yule I think, wrote this, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, yes it was. Okay, Tom says in, uh, actually, the next two are about the, the, the flattening the carcass of a table, if you will, that uh, we, we talked about in a recent episode. He says, a reminder, if you go Shannon's or another method to uh, flatten the underside or mating surface at the top, be ready to screw it down right after flattening. If you wait, there's a good chance it'll become unflat. Once again, hopefully by screwing it down or whatever other attachment technique uh, that may keep it from moving, emphasis on May, I like using sliding dovetails to attach tops to carcasses when the design allows. Well, thanks, Tom. Heck
1: yeah. That's cool, but heck of a lot more work. That it is. Uh, okay, this one comes from Preston. Uh, he says, assembly of, of a large object table, etc., if you have the table base legs sitting on almost any floor other than an engineered super flat concrete slab, that floor is going to be uneven, sometimes surprisingly so. Mm-hmm. The table will rock depending on what high low points the legs are sitting. If you're really concerned, throw a level on the base and throw solid shims under the legs before you start making decisions as to reflattening tops or table aprons. That's a very good point. That is And you know, you may get it flat in your shop and then you take it somewhere else. And yeah, you know, the hardwood floor it's sitting on or the whatever it's sitting on is just bad. So yeah, that's why I generally put those little carpet pads under it anyway, Right, doesn't scratch the floor. And then it usually pulls out any rock.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I know even with two carpet my, uh, pads under one corner and one under the other, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, yeah. I use those little felt discs that are just perfect for that. And I've got a tile floor, uh tile throughout the house. And you know, even with tile, sometimes they're just laid. One's a little bit deeper than another and things are very rarely perfect. So the great thing is if your tables and your chairs are perfect in the shop, just bring them in the house because you might just happen to put it in a spot where it's perfect. Because the floor is uneven, too. They might just mate together perfectly.
1: You have to put tape down on the floor. This chair
0: goes here. Right, exactly. Don't it has that chair. right in it the spot. Right Anywhere else, it just doesn't work. Right. Uh, cool. All right, let's get into our voicemail. We got one here from Gerard, and uh, it's concerning the Schwarz's Milkman's Workbench.
2: Gentlemen, it's Gerard calling from Bowie, Maryland. I am calling with a question about an end grain to long grain joint. I've also attached a photo to help clarify this, but I am building the milkman's workbench from Christopher Schwarz's plans in pop woodworking a little while ago and uh, there's a frame that goes around the primary work surface, uh, and that frame ends in a bridle joint at the lower left-hand corner, which provides an area for face yeah. clamping, um, but it also is g- glued and screwed to the end grain of that work surface. Uh, so I'm not sure how the glue and screws will work over the long term with wood movement as we're expanding and contracting uh across the work surface um, but because we're at end grain to long grain they aren't going to move together so it seems to me like something like a breadboard end is going to work better here but i feel like i might be missing something because christopher schwartz usually knows what he's talking about uh if you could let me know what you guys think i would appreciate it thanks gentlemen
0: well first of all clarification that chris schwartz guy he's a maroon, <laughs> what, okay. a maroon. what a maroon what uh, yeah, Shores does know his stuff, so good to, to question your questioning of well, this. Well, I want to know, was that airplane at your house or <clears throat> at Gerard's house? The airplane and the uh, Firefox update were both at my house. Oh, okay his his uh voicemail is actually like a recorded um on his phone type voicemail right. fantastic right. uh quality so anyone who wants to send us voicemails was he say
1: he's in buoy he's not far from Patuxent Naval air Station, so you never know yeah could have been, no but in an f fourteen instead yeah, of a right. f
0: sixteen his recording was clean uh all right, so the milkman's workbench thing is uh is a pretty nice little mobile workbench clamping solution. Uh, so the question, uh, Shannon, because I'm sure you're more familiar with this design than I am, um, how big or how wide is that main span with the dog holes toward the back? The, and that's, See, a, that's the thing he's most concerned about. Oh, okay. I thought you might know. It, it's not very big. It doesn't look longer um, than six inches. No, I,
1: I would be surprised if it was like four, Yeah, to tell you the truth. All right, so um, you
0: want to look this up, people. Just look up Milkman's workbench, and you'll find lots of people who built this, and you'll see the design we're talking about. Um, he did give us a picture. Maybe we should post, um, what's his name, Gerard? We should maybe post it's this picture.
1: seven and three-eighths from front to back, like the entire width of it. Okay. Um, I'm looking at actually so, um, Mark Hochstein okay. built it. Way so
0: go. probably oh. under seven inches, right? Yeah, I I
1: mean, I would say five. Okay, um, because you've probably at least got an inch, then maybe another two inches in the gap for the vice screws are. Yeah. So you know, four and change is that distance back there. So. Uh, thickness of is one and five eighths inches. So you, you're looking at six quarter stock. Yeah. Um, he, in his picture, he built that out of ash, which is pretty dang stable to start with. But forget about the wood species here. You're going to look at probably most North American species, you're looking at maybe 6% uh, radial movement. So what's 6% of five inches? I Not don't much. know. Not very much. Yeah. Um, So, you know, there's not a whole lot of movement there. I am a little surprised that Chris recommended gluing it and screwing it. Um, Because to me, screws would not have been enough. Because the screws are going to flex with the wood as it moves. Yeah. Um, now, Now, granted, this end cap we're talking about anchors one side of a piece that has vice screws on it. So there is some dynamic force going on. As you clamp those vice screws down, you're wanting to pull that front apron off.
0: Yeah, you're bowing which is that
1: board. is anchored to an end cap, which is just glued and screwed in place. So maybe he glued it. I don't know. I mean, the glue is not going to make that strong of a joint on end grain anyway. So maybe it was just more of... Probably just to hold it in place while you drive the screws yeah. more than anything else. Yeah, maybe. So th- there is that. That glue is is probably not going to prevent the um the wood from moving. It'll probably break the glue joint if you had really big problems before anything else. And the screw's just there to keep it from falling off, maybe.
0: Yeah, and ultimately, if there was movement there, I don't think the movement would be any more significant than the movement of that the clamps are going to induce when you clamp something down. That front board is going to flex You know, that's not Mm going to stay straight. So if there were some weird movement issue, uh, you probably would see some of the flex in that front board. But just to give you some numbers, I did go to the woodshop widget and uh, calculated it out. And Ash and Maple at this size range are giving me pretty much the same results here. Uh, But just as an example here, you mentioned Ash and that's specific to his issue. Um, I did a 10% humidity to 60% humidity on a six inch wide board, okay? Mm -hmm. And let's say it's flat sawn uh, if you're looking at the dimensions of what he's using there, you could very easily like get a thicker board and just turn it 90 degrees and get yourself like a quarter sawn orientation. Mm-hmm. So flat sawn, you're looking at uh, the nearest fraction that the calculator gives me for movement from 10% humidity to 60% humidity is an eighth of an inch, and that's flat. Yeah. If you move to rift, you're looking at about 330 seconds, and if you move to quarter sawn, uh, you're looking at either a 16th to maybe 330 seconds of an inch. Uh, And it's just not much movement. Yeah, and a 50%
1: humidity swing is huge.
0: Yeah, huge. It doesn't
1: happen very often. It happens like in short, like when a storm blows through, it happens for like a a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, And that's what you have to remember is it's not, you know, wood doesn't like pick up moisture super fast especially when it's kiln dried in right. fact it's very very slow when it comes to absorbing it sheds moisture really quickly when it's kiln dried but it takes a long time to absorb moisture so yeah, yeah. you're talking it's got to be at that elevated humidity level for days on end and then it's slowly getting to 60 percent moisture over a series of days right so um now i i really don't think you're having an issue but you know what you're building it right And that's what the beauty of being – of building these things is if you want to put a breadboard in there, knock yourself out.
0: Yeah, you could do a breadboard. You could do a sliding dovetail. Yeah. I think would be appropriate for that. You do a sliding dovetail, you're going to have no problems at all. Uh, Maybe just put a little glue at the very front end and let all movement uh, push to the back and any discrepancies would only be in the back and that doesn't require really any screws. Well, actually, if you think about it, because –
1: you know, breadboard would rely upon um, a, a peg in there somewhere, yeah. and it's pretty narrow. You know, you don't have a lot of space to be able to put multiple tendons and a peg in there. But because there is that gap between the front apron and there's that gap to clamp stuff, right. you've got a built-in expansion joint right there. Yeah. So you could actually just create a mortise and tenon um, and make the, the, let's see, make the tenon a little bit, Shorter than the mortise, yeah yeah, um, and there's already space for it to expand and contract into that opening, if not out the back side, sure. of, of the bench, so yeah I, and in now that I even think about that, you know, gluing and screwing it, you know any movement you're going to get, i the screws are not going to inhibit movement, um they flex uh the glue because it's a poor, it's a weak joint, is not going to really inhibit very much. So the only issue you would have to worry about is if you wrap the entire bench in a frame, which you're not. You've already got expansion off the backside and into that vice that you don't have to worry about it.
0: Yeah. And so uh, the whole
1: conversation's moot.
0: Don't worry about it. Yes, and also uh, it's good to overthink things sometimes, like we oh, we're yeah. like we're doing right now. Yeah. All right. Fun. Let's move into our email real quick here. We've got uh, one here from George. He says, I'll give Shannon a big high five as I'm beginning to become more and more hand tool exclusive. Woo-hoo, virtual hand five. That's great. You can hand guys, uh, you can hand five. Yeah. Virtual. You guys can give hand. yourself big gorilla monkey, hairy knuckle, uh, big hand high fives.
1: We don't have hairy knuckles because you, you were braided off. Oh, for your sharpening? It.
0: Yeah. Just, <laughs> oh, it's a braided off. I thought you were just, just testing your sharpening. Just dragging your knuckles, well, <laughs> right. actually, yeah. That too, right? Uh, all right, so with that said, I'm about to build my first legitimate bench and was planning on using a leg vise. Uh, I have a big piece of 16-quarter hard maple that I'm planning on using for the chop. My issue is that the piece is only four inches wide and I'm going to need to glue it together to get the proper width. Do you think that a glue up on a chop like this is going to be asking for trouble or should I be okay? Uh, Now this is just my personal opinion. I don't think it'll be a problem. Uh, I've got a laminated chop on mine and I think the... The thing you have to remember with a leg vise, especially one that has a suede surface or some other grippy surface in it, you don't really need to apply a ton of pressure. Right? Uh, I mean, yeah, that thing—we're not, not cracking walnuts here, people. Yeah. Well, sometimes you might. It's it, the holidays are coming. That might be a That's great true. way to crack your walnuts. Um, but usually, what I do is I swipe my uh, handle, I spin the wheel on the vise, and whatever pressure it, it gets when it contacts the board I'm trying to hold is all it needs. Uh, so, it, you're, you really don't need to crank down. Uh, so, you're not going to get that sort of thing where if you just happen to crank down on the edge and there's your joint right there, that you're going to snap that thing off. Uh, I don't, especially with a long grain glue bond like that, I don't really think that that's going to be much of a problem. So, as long as it's a good, clean, jointed edge, you bring those two pieces together. Good amount of glue there. If you want to reinforce it with some, you know, tenons or something, I don't think you need to. But if you wanted to, you could. Uh, honestly, I don't think you're going to have any problems at all. I say laminate away, have fun clamping. It should be fine.
1: Yeah, depending on the vice he's using, it might actually make things easier.
2: You mm-hmm. know, if you
1: could cut some of that joinery before gluing it together. Yeah, maybe. Sure. I don't know. Of course, uh, then you got to deal with alignment and everything. But right. Yeah, I I don't have a problem with that. 16 quarter so strong to begin with, too. You're talking about an immense amount of glue right. surface, too. Right. Yep.
0: Good. And he's going to probably put that, you know, have, have that four-inch piece. Well, it depends on what he's going to do, because uh, I'm trying to think, is he going with the four-inch piece, four inch piece in the center and bringing two other pieces on the outside, or is he going four-inch and four-inch and getting a total of, like, an eight-inch eight, eight inch piece? But either way, again, let's not overthink it. It'll probably be just fine. It'll hold. If
1: it doesn't, blame Matt, because he's not here.
0: Yep. Everything's Matt's fault.
1: Yeah. Matt would have been the voice of reason were he here. Yep, exactly. All right. This next one comes from David. He says, my conundrum is fairly straightforward. What to keep and what to toss. My scrap brin is growing quickly with cutoffs of some very nice pieces of wood. And I'm left wondering what guidelines you use in your shops to determine when it's time to part ways with a beautiful, albeit too small, piece of wood. (laughs) I'm not really into turning pen blanks, but I also have a substantial amount of eight-foot by one by four. See, he's using your sizing convention again. Sweet. I'm
0: confused. I don't know what you're talking Sweet. about. I, it's finally
1: taking effect. I knew it. Anyway, he says, I don't have anything that currently needs edge banded, so I don't really know what to use those for. I really, I, re, I really liking, that's what he says, I really liking running a clean and clutter-free shop, and I don't want to turn into a hoarder. I'm mostly keeping the pieces to make my own dowel splines, butterfly keys, etc. Now, I feel like we talked about this on a previous show and I did some searching and I really couldn't find this. Maybe we talked about talking about this and we just never did. Yeah. Or it was just so long ago that I just gave up before I got to that point. Who knows? But I have some experience with this recently when I did my shop remodel last year. Um, And uh, you run into this and my problem was is I, I, I have been known to turn pins before. So I really had a problem where I was starting to keep every little off cut. So... Whether you turn pins or not, the first thing to address is the smaller the piece, like if you're if you're gonna turn it into something, it if if I'm gonna keep it and it's really small, it's gotta be like outstandingly figured. Um, because any slight little figure on a small piece shows up as a completely normal board. So if you're keeping it because it's figured and it's really tiny, it's gotta be pretty outstanding, or I'm throwing it out. Um, I remember I had some curly maple and I had a long like he's saying here, at had a long cutoff. Well, I immediately took that and cut it into six-inch lengths and made pin blanks out of it. And those pins were the most boring things I've ever seen. Because there just wasn't enough figure crammed into that little bit of real estate to make it look like anything special. Right. Over the course of an eight-inch-wide, eight-foot-long board, yeah, it looked fantastic. But it was completely uh, vanilla uh, on a smaller scale like that. So if you're keeping stuff, like he says, for splines and butterfly keys... Remember, when you cut it down really, really small, it's probably not going to make that big of an impact unless it is ridiculously figured. So right away, take a close look at those and throw out the stuff that's really not that um, outstandingly figured. Then set yourself guidelines. Um, Get a scrap box, build a scrap box, dedicate a drawer for the little offcuts for splines and things like that. When the drawer gets full, when the box gets full, go through it and throw out, be really, really picky and throw out stuff or, you know, pull stuff out and say, I'm going to build a project with this. And, you know, until that box is empty, you're not adding anything else into it. Um, And and, uh, regulate yourself. Have some willpower, people. When it gets full, you got to do something about it. And I had a drawer in my shop that I dedicated for those really figured things for splines and butterfly keys and everything. The other thing you can do, especially when it comes to dowels, because I run into this a lot where I'll get this little off-cut piece, um, and it's nice straight grain, and I know that it will rive out to make nice pegs. What I'll do is go ahead and rive it into little parts. And I have a small cardboard box um, that I just drop those in, and they're ready to go. Um, All I do is pound them through the dowel plate, and I've got a peg. But I've gone ahead and done the pre-splitting, so I don't have a big board. I've got a bunch of little squares that Mm. are already destined. And frankly, there's nothing else I could do with them at that point. So, you know, and, and if I see, if I get another off cut that I think, oh, this would make great peg material. And I look at that cardboard box and I go, no, it's already full. I just pitch it. I don't worry about it. So if you already think I'm going to use it for something, I'm going to use it for a wedge down the road. Maybe go ahead, take a couple of seconds, you know, run over to the bandsaw, grab your handsaw and cut out a bunch of wedge pieces um, and then put them somewhere, have a specific drawer or box or something that you put those little, um, augmented pieces into. But the biggest thing is just determine a space. And when that space gets full, do something about it. Um, because otherwise it gets out of control and yeah, everything has does. those sentimental pieces for it. Um, the only reason I'm keeping anything that's smaller than a furniture sized part is if it has a lot of figure or it's like a, a really interesting board. Like it's a, you know, it's a, a you know Bubinga may not be really figured, but is interesting, sure you know what I mean yeah. it 's exotic, um and I might keep that, but even then, uh, you know unless it's got a lot of figure, it just doesn 't come across in a small small piece right. so
0: well, and one uh, of the problems you run into with that if you are amassing this huge collection of small cutoffs, uh, this is what I run into is. I sometimes can't see them all, and I don't even realize something I could have used. I'll I'll see it afterwards and go, "Oh, I just cut down this, you know, a big chunk off of this bigger board to get something small." And I had that one sitting right there, and I couldn't see it. You know, so if it's this massive pile, it just becomes kind of useless at a certain point. So I love your idea of having these guidelines in place of of things that you keep and don't keep, just as a rule. Um, But I will suggest a few things because I know people will freak out when they uh, think of someone just throwing out. Any decent quality wood. Even saying that,
1: like I had a little, like my stomach turned a little bit when I said
0: that. Sure, it's a natural reaction. But there are people who are like, you know, never throw anything away. Um, Do yourself a favor. See if you could find a few special friends. And one of those is someone who likes to barbecue. Uh, If you have cutoffs of any domestic, mostly any domestic species, in all likelihood there is someone who barbecues who would love to have that for smoking. Uh, another thing is to, like you said, uh, talk to some pen turners. There are probably people in your area who would love to take those boards off your hands and use yeah. them for for small items and turnings. Uh, and then, of course, people who use the scroll saw and do uh, like really, you know, tiny n- nitty sort of uh, scroll work. <laughs> tiny <laughs> no, nitty. What do you? What, what? I was going to say nitpicky, but that's is not scroll the, sawing. The knitting of woodworking is that what you're saying? No, nah, no. Nah, well, yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> but no. But yes, uh, so if you if you know people like that, they are always looking for small, thin pieces of material, you know, for intarsia and scroll pattern work and stuff like that. So you find those people that at least you know you're getting rid of it and someone else is going to use it to another level. And then I'm not sure what they're going to do with their scraps, but that's their problem at that right. point. It's so small. Uh, and you could justify throwing it away at a certain point. You know,
1: the the other thing I'll say, because I've been guilty of this a lot, Um you know, you're about to start a project, and I've got a you know a shed out in the back that's got a lot of lumber in it, and I'll go back there, you know, with my my parts list and thinking, are oh, these are the boards that I need and everything, and I end up coming up short, um, and I'll I'll go to the lumber yard and end up buying the lumber like the entire amount of lumber for the project because I want a good color and grain match, right? Yeah. So when you end up with scraps that maybe are furniture sized. Um, you know, are you actually going to use them? Are you going to use that individual board when you're concerned about grain and color match? That's the other thing you're about if right. it's a secondary type wood, absolutely you would. Yep. But are you going to use that one kind of rail and style shaped piece when the other three in that door probably won't match in color? Probably not. So then that scrap gets put aside again, right. and again, and again, and again. Yep. So it may even be a decent sized board, and that's a perfect example to reach out to you know, the community and say, who wants this board? You know, you know I, heck, if you're feeling, if you're really attached to it,
0: who wants to buy this board? You know, yeah. you probably still even find somebody interested. I used to do this once in a while. I need to do it again because I'm actually getting a lot of those scraps, especially the walnut scraps from, uh, the, uh, rocking chair build. There's just yeah, so I many. I saw that in the background of one of your videos. Yeah, recently. man. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Like <laughs> I got to come up with another project that could use thick walnut in small lengths. Uh, yeah. But I, I've done this in the past, and that's have a little sell-off where I'm not really making a bunch of money, uh, but I try to get the, um, the the single rate shipping boxes from the U.S. Postal Service and pack in as much wood into those various size boxes as possible. So now I know exactly how much it's going to cost to ship, and I could just go online and say, "All right, who wants this one? Pay the shipping plus a couple bucks for my effort, and send it out to somebody, you know, and let them figure yeah. out what to do with it."
1: I've done that before with a lot of turning. Mm-hmm. Uh, size stuff that's a good idea yeah
0: it works great alright so our last question here we'll get to real quick is from Jake and we're both going to kind of address this not that we don't both address all the other questions <laughs> it's true which kind of defeats the whole point of this but anyway uh, Jake says I'm interested in loose tenon joinery and cannot afford the Festool system I have come across the beadlock system sold through Rockler which retails right in my price range and was wondering if you had any experience using it or if there are any potential drawbacks now I have limited experience with beadlock and I know you said you've used it a little bit. So you want to quickly talk about your experience and I'll uh, give sure. my opinion too.
1: Um, the, I specifically put this question in because it took me back to my early days of woodworking when everything was mysterious and difficult. Yeah. And mortise and tenons were one, those, one yeah. of those. And I was convinced that I had to have a system. I had to have something, you know, to cut the tenon. Cause, and, and the, the mortise, cause how else would you do that? black magic, you know? Right. Um, So I bought this, and I I still have the project today. It was a cutting board um, holder, you know, because my wife doesn't really like wooden cutting boards. She likes the plastic ones because they don't pick up the germs and stuff like that. You okay. know, you use your wooden cutting board for cheeses, right? <laughs> not for cutting meat on. So we have one of those just, you know, cheapo plastic things, but it fits in a little holder, which slides into my kitchen cabinets. So I made essentially a frame out of that. And I used the beadlock thing for that. It was not nearly as, as, um, pain free and simple solution as they make it out to be. Yeah. Um, you, you set it in place, you kind of clamp it in place and you drill three holes and, And then you loosen these knobs and you kind of shift everything over um, to the right or the left and you clamp it down again you drill the same three holes. And what you've done is kind of drilled out the half holes in between the holes you just drilled. And because there's a bushing on there, it it guides your drill bit. There was still... um, And then they have these beadlock tenons, long um, pieces of kind of beaded molding that you cut to length and those are your loose tenons. They were really tight. Um, I had to do quite a bit of kind of and really tight, not like, hey, this is good tight. No, no, no. It would have like starved the joint with glue and totally wouldn't have been a good thing. So I ended up having to kind of go back without the bushings and kind of wiggle the drill bit a little bit while it was running to kind of ream it out a little so that it would fit more. Um, And then, of course, you have to have the tenoning material. And they somebody makes a router bit that will allow you to run your own bead tenanting material but now you're buying a router bit and that's one of those bits that probably should be in a table not you know in handheld routers yeah so that's got a router table. that's a
0: pretty substantial profile over right. over the distance that it has to cover
1: yeah so your little uh cheap entry level system now is requiring you to go back and buy more tenanting material or go and buying uh, a router bit and a router on a router table and yeah you know what better way in my opinion other than the domino let's be real what better way to make loose tenons than then with a router and guess what you can make a bunch of other stuff with a router too
0: yeah yeah so, A router is I, a good and,
1: solution and and you don't have to spend a lot of money on a router you know you can buy a porter cable set for really cheap now oh plus so. he's
0: probably already got a router i mean there's probably. very few woodworkers that don't have one at least uh, you know one in their shop yeah, and if he doesn't have one, Diami has one for him. Yeah, he's got quite a collection. Second time we're bringing him up in the show. Yeah, we must he's like practically him. Practically a host, almost. Uh, so you know, the bead lock is interesting. I I used it at the same exact period in my woodworking career as you did. When and it it's was when like
1: Rockler really gets you, isn't you know, it though? Early on, you need to have those little gizmos.
0: Yeah, I want to do a mortise and tenon, but I'm not quite sure I could do this like perfectly square thingy, So let me get this bead lock system. I just was not impressed with it at the time, even that early on. I'm like, eh, I'm just going to learn how to do a mortise and tenon because this doesn't feel great to me. Uh, so, that doesn't mean that the system doesn't work. You know, I'm sure, especially looking at it now, it's very different than when, because uh, I think Rockler now it looks like they are the only ones who sell it. So, maybe they own it. Uh, but previously it wasn't a Rockler product. You know, It was an independent uh, thing. So it's very different now, and they even have this add-on to it, which I think is kind of interesting, where you could put a guide for your chisel. So if you just want to do a traditional smooth-walled mortise and tenon joint, you could put this little doodad on there, and it guides your chisel, so you drill, pre-drill ahead of time, keep your little jig in place, and then chisel it nice and square using the guide as a starting point.
1: Oh wow, that looks totally different.
0: Yeah, doesn't it? I mean, it's nothing right. like it Good used to Good on you,
1: Rockler. You made it much better.
0: It does look improved. So keep in mind, we're both commenting on our personal experiences from the old beadlock system. This oh. looks different and it looks like it does more than what it used to. So if you run is out it, of like beadlock. This is $140. Yep, $140 bucks. See the thing I bought was like thirty. Thirty, yeah. I was going to say the same thing. It's like 30, 35 bucks. Whoa! All right. So, well, that
1: changes things, not in a good way, though. No, in my opinion, you could buy a heck of a router and a real good setup for one hundred and forty
0: dollars. Right, right. And this one just looks like it gives you a lot of different options. So, you, but you bring up a very valid point: is that if you are able to design a couple of jigs. Uh, I mean, the thing is this slaps on the end grain of a board much more conveniently than it would if you were to, you know, try to do this with a router based setup. Uh, You'd have to make some kind of a jig if you're going handheld or you'd have to have a good alignment. Uh, with your fence, if it's a router table set up and you're trying to route end grain that way, that'd be a little bit dicey. So it isn't like the router is just the end-all be-all for this, you would take some creativity and work. Uh, but still, 140 bucks is a pretty substantial asking price for you know this type of solution. So hopefully, I don't know, maybe they worked out some of the the kinks with it and have a little bit more precise drilling and precisely matched uh, beadlock stock that fits in so it's a, a nice, perfect fit. Yeah. So I mean, it uh, kind of sucks that we just have old information, so we can't really give. Yeah. I mean, well, just looking at it, definitely a lot of the problems that I had with it are
1: gone. I can just tell. I mean, the, it's got a two fence system that clamps in place. You, you know, I had to like bring my own clamp,
0: you know, yeah,
1: and, and clamp it in, and it was just this little dinky thing. This definitely the the bushings are deeper, so it's definitely going to guide your drill a lot better. It even comes with a, a drill bit star uh stop collar, right, which it didn't before. So most definitely, I think the issues that I had with it probably don't exist anymore. What it comes down to is is there a more fundamental furniture joint than the mortise and tenon? And you know, it's one of those things where this will help you do it, but you're you're prolonging the inevitable. Right. right? you got to learn you got to learn yeah it's you can't it, i don't furniture or not i guess you don't use a lot of mortise and tenons when you're building small boxes or whatever but i mean it's the joint um, you, you're not a woodworker unless you cut mortise and tenons there i said it
0: <clears throat> i'm not going to agree with that just <laughs> just for pr purposes uh, but <laughs> but yeah i mean the thing is with a mortise and tenon the things required the skills and the tools required to make that are fundamental things that you need to know and use in furniture building, so if you don't know how to make one, you're going to find a lot of obstacles in your path. Yeah. Um, you know, so so always like these things are great stepping stones, but I agree, you always want to work your way toward a more reliable, long term solution that also builds your skills, if you can. Uh, But ultimately, if this works for you, if somebody buys the beadlock and it works great and this is their mortise and tenon solution, all the power to them. If it's doing it for you and you're happy with it, then forget what we're saying. Uh, But if your goal goal is to just continue to to get better at what you do and to increase your skills in woodworking, you're probably going to get to a mortise and tenon sooner than you think. Because it's just not that, it's not as hard as it may seem. And as people who've gone through that phase of, oh, God, this is crazy, how am I going to make this, to, well, this is really no problem, it's, you know, you could make one with your eyes closed. Yeah. So, all
1: right. Cool. Well, and to be fair, there is a basic starter kit that's $30. Oh. Okay. Which looks very similar to what you and I had
0: yeah okay it's
1: just a little bushing block and a fence and it's got pretty rockler blue colors on it now
0: yeah 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 okay but so it's this,
1: still very similar so we're, so we're looking
0: at the beadlock pro kit right yeah now. Okay. yeah
1: so i mean there's a bunch of them now typical rockler they've got like 30 different offerings <laughs> and it's a whole modular system that if you buy everything to make it work it ends up being 140 dollars. there you go so yeah so okay just so we get our facts right
0: yep 29 bucks i see it right there not bad all right, well, good, good stuff. Uh, let's see what we have here. If you want to support the show, you can just head to woodtalkshow. com look for those donation links in a side column, and I cannot tell you how much. We appreciate the support like that. I mean, it's uh, doing this show on the side when people are sick, people are changing jobs and, uh, you know, kid in a the hospital, there's like a lot going on. Uh, and yeah. it does it does take a lot to do this one hour show. And honestly, you know, listening to the show is the most important thing. But the folks who take the time to to go and send us a few bucks, I just want to let you know, we really appreciate it. It makes it easier for us to make time uh, to do this show and talk to you guys virtually like this. We really appreciate your support. Uh, thank you. And yeah thank you and also if you want to help us out a little bit you can go to iTunes and leave us a review just look us up in the iTunes store click on ratings and reviews and if you can give us a sweet five star rating just like V Rod Bob did he says I listen to all the podcasts out there that are woodworking related and Mark Matt and Shannon are the best I spend a lot of time driving for uh, for work and these three are always with me in my travels the insights knowledge and opinions are thoughtful and the banter amongst the hosts is an entertaining is as entertaining as it is informative a jones for new shows when they go on breaks and often listen to the archive of old shows if you're interested in woodworking be all power hybrid woodworking trademark mark he says I like that <laughs> trademark mark or hand tools or hand tools this show has you covered uh, so thanks very much V-Rod Bob we appreciate the kind words and uh, how about you give them the contact info and we can get out of here okay <laughs> Uh, I can't chortle I'm sorry Matt I think it sounds like Popeye most times
1: so. <laughs> alright folks if you have comments, questions, or topic suggestions you have several different ways to contact us you can leave a voicemail on Skype our username is woodtalkonline call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180 or you can email us at kickback at woodtalkshow.com or just leave us a comment on our WoodTalk Facebook page and if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you can find them at woodtalkshow.com. Awesome.
0: All right. That well, is all. Great show. That's and all I'll, you got
1: to do. That's it. Good that's show. All. Amazingly,
0: we filled the time without Matt. Yes. Too much time, actually. Hour and yeah. 10 minutes. And hopefully uh, Matt will be back next week. We think he will. So, you know, keep your fingers crossed.
1: We went long for Matt so that he's got something to listen to on the plane.
0: That's right. He's traveling, Matt, now. The
1: show's for you, Matt.
0: There you go. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Alright, you know what's funny is that we just answered a question about the beadlock system, basically told the guy it sucks, and then yeah. admitted that we haven't used the current one. That's <laughs> that that's what you get at Wood Talk.